Hello. It is Tuesday the 1st of August. It is Poetry Month, or Pottery Month, as my teacher Joshua Megan would have it. Last year for Poetry Month, I did this thing where I looked at one poem every day for the whole month, and I looked at a poem by John Forbes. It was called Speed of Pastoral. On day two of doing that, I had this thought. I remember exactly where I was. I thought, why didn't I do Dorothy Porter? (laughs) The poet who wrote my favourite poem of all time. I did learn so much through doing that Forbes episode, and I don't regret it for a second, but I am excited and a little nervous to do this project again with a poem by Dorothy Porter. Porter is a complex figure to talk about, and I'm looking forward to digging into all that and getting some help to do so. Her presence as a poet has been very important to me. She's definitely been an influence on me, particularly when I was first starting out. The fact that Porter was there made me feel like I could keep going. I have no idea how this will go. All I want to do today, though, to get started is just to read this poem through the one time. I've never read it out loud before, so let's see how we go. It's called Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss. We were never married, Dido. Cease weeping. Let me leave and agree we both knew real spouses. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. Oh, the scorch of lost Trojan mornings in our rumpled bed with bread, figs, and yes, honey, I could taste honey, as if every bee in Troy had made her phantom its swarming hive. Of course I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit, and accept we were never married. Yes, my divided heart rears for you, mourning already the smell of your flushed skin and the sting of your green fire eyes. But we were never married, and your ghost, such threats, will keep its roost and never come, and never come looking for me through my next awful war, next, next sacked city, to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. We were never married, Dido. Believe me. I'm sad too that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. Good Lord, what have I bitten off? Day two, end of a long Wednesday. I thought I should probably talk a little bit about the structure of the poem because you can't see it. Uh, it's a 27-line poem broken up into three-line stanzas, which I believe are called tercets. There's a little bit of rhyme really softly around the edges, particularly at the start of the poem, but there's no 
metrical pattern that I can figure out at this point. Why this poem? I guess you're wondering. Why would I talk about this poem and not my favourite poem written by Porter, my favourite poem ever, a poem called Lucky, which I'll read out at some point. Well, the main reason is that I just think that that poem is, while it's, it's beautiful and moving and pretty much perfect in my mind, uh, I don't think it would stand up to a month of being stared at. Whereas this one feels like there is a lot more to chew on, probably too much. That's how I feel right now anyway. And there's, there's another reason that I'm attracted to it. Most of the time when I come across a poem that talks in terms of, that references Greek myth, I feel resistant because... I don't have a great grasp of that stuff and it can feel like homework to me. But Dido and Aeneas, I actually do know pretty well, or I did at least when I was younger. When I was growing up, my dad played classical music all the time at home and in his car and when he would drive us to school. And you know, there were definitely moments when we felt pretty embarrassed by that. And he played a lot of opera. So I can say, quite honestly, without trying to be fancy, that Dido and Aeneas by Purcell is my favourite opera. So yeah, I kind of grew up with it. I can remember lying on the floor in the big lounge room (laughs) where my parents did a lot of their smoking and my mum listened to the Eagles and my dad listened to classical music and I used to put this on, put the CD on and lie there and, and sort of stare at the liner notes. Having said all that, I can't really remember what happens in Dido and Aeneas. And so I'm not sure how much this moment in this poem really reflects their story. So I'm going to need to listen to that opera again and do quite a bit more research. But yeah, at the moment, I just feel, I feel excited to spend the rest of the month with this. I feel daunted by some of the themes that are in this poem. I feel like I really do need to ask for some help. And I feel, most of all, I feel fascinated by Porter's choice to write from Aeneas's perspective, from a male perspective. And the title, Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss, is, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I fully have a grasp on it yet, but the thing that I've been thinking about today is that domestic bliss is a term that is never, it's never really used without irony. Like you never really sincerely say domestic bliss. It's like domestic goddess, you know, it's, it's only ever kind of a funny way of describing something. Domestic bliss is, is sort of like a joke state. It isn't. Okay, it is Thursday evening, dinner is on the stove, get to have a day off tomorrow, I'm so ready for it. I tried listening to the opera while I was making dinner, I was like, oh, why don't I just pop that on and listen to it while I'm cooking? And I got about 15 seconds in, 
and I realized that I, uh, I, I just, I just couldn't, I just, I can't listen to it right now. Um, there's just too much emotion and memory and I don't, I don't really know what, but, um, yeah, I just, that was gonna, that was not gonna end well. So I decided instead to go to a book because I've realized that I actually don't know this story well at all. I, I really don't remember it from the opera. But when I was up in Canberra last for Dad's birthday um, back in April, we were, we're talking about this question of how so many poets seem to use Greek myth as a structure, as an organizing principle or a way to a way to find a theme to hold their poems together. And I was complaining and saying, you know, I just don't know Greek myth that well. And so I feel confused a lot, a lot of the time when they do that, when poets do this. And he had this book on his shelf, which is just called Mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes by Edith Hamilton. I think this first came out in the 60s. Nope, 1942 <laughs> this first came out. Um, yeah, and he said, oh, yeah, I bought that book um, for that exact same reason, but I haven't read it, so why don't you take it home with you? And I did, and believe it or not, I actually have read a little bit of it, and I looked through it last night and realized that Dido and Aeneas are in this book, and it gives a lot of shape to this poem. I'm going to try to outline the story. There's quite a few layers to it, which is so often the case with these things. There are so many characters and they all have these names that you can barely keep track of, but I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to keep it simple. I'm going to try to explain this, this story of Dido and Aeneas according to Edith Hamilton. I probably should, you know, if, if I had uh, infinite time, I guess the move here would be to go and read the Aeneid, but... Uh, I don't have access to a parallel universe, so I'm just going to read this book instead. So basically, on the way from Troy to Italy, where Aeneas is going to found a new city for his people, for a whole bunch of complicated reasons to do with avoiding various dangers, Aeneas has to go via Carthage. One of the dangers that they face on the way is the goddess Juno, who hates all Trojans, Aeneas in particular she hates and she tries to drown Aeneas and his men and they only just make it to Carthage thanks to Neptune intervening on their behalf. So once they get there Juno starts to think okay how can I turn this situation to to my advantage and the advantage of the Carthaginians? She thinks of Carthage as her favorite city, her pet city. I'm going to read a little bit from this Edith Hamilton book now. Carthage had been founded by a woman, Dido, who was still its ruler and under whom it was growing into a great and splendid city. She was beautiful and a widow. Aeneas had lost his wife on the night he left Troy. I don't quite know what she means It like lost as in they broke up or she died. Like I, I got to go figure that out. Juno's plan was to have the two fall in love, to divert Aeneas from Italy, and to induce him to settle down with Dido. 
So Juno is thinking, if I can waylay him, if I can get him to fall in love with Dido and to stay here, he'll never make it to Italy. He'll never found what essentially becomes the Roman Empire. If I'm following that correctly. I think I think that's it. Okay. Aeneas, I should have mentioned, is Venus's son or Aphrodite's son. And Venus also wants to get involved in this situation. So Edith Hamilton says, Venus suspected what was in Juno's mind and was determined to block it. She had her own plan. She was quite willing to have Dido fall in love with Aeneas, so no harm could come to him in Carthage. But she intended to see to it that his feeling for Dido should be no more than an entire willingness to take anything she wanted to give, but by no means to interfere in the least with his sailing away to Italy. So Venus, Aeneas's mum, is like, okay, you, Dido can fall in love with you, but I don't want you to get too attached because eventually I do need you to leave and go to Italy. Okay, that's making sense so far. I'm happy with that. And so that happens. Aeneas and Dido fall in love. And uh, I really like this passage. Edith Hamilton describes them being together. She says, Aeneas seemed devoted to her, to Dido, and she, for her part, lavished everything she had on him. She wanted only to give. She asked nothing for herself except Aeneas's love. On his side, he received what her generosity bestowed with great contentment. He lived at his ease with a beautiful woman and a powerful queen to love him and provide everything for him and arrange hunting parties for his amusement and not only permit him but beg him to tell over and over again the tales of his adventures. Paging Rebecca Solnit. So, as as happens, there was a snag, there was a twist, things did not end happily there. Juno gets involved again. Wait, I'm totally confused now. Hang on. Jupiter is involved now. Jupiter sends Mercury to send a message to Aeneas. Why is he... Oh, I'm going to have to read this again. <laughs> essentially somebody goes to Carthage and says hey Aeneas you need to rouse yourself you need to um, get the hell out of here and resume your mission and Aeneas is Hamilton says Aeneas was excited and determined to obey but chiefly wretchedly conscious of how very difficult it was going to be with Dido that feeling when you know you got to break up but you're just you're just dreading it and so Dido says to Aeneas let these tears plead for me this hand I gave to you if I have in any way deserved well of you if anything of mine was ever sweet to you and then he interrupts and says and says that he was not the man to deny that she had done well by him and that he would never forget her but she on her side must remember that he had not married her and was free to leave her whenever he chose. Jupiter had ordered him to go and he must obey. Cease these complaints, he begged her, which only trouble us both. Okay. It's Friday afternoon. I am about to drive out to the Dandenongs for a 
couple of nights for a friend's hen's weekend. Don't know what to expect. Pretty sure there's not going to be penis straws. I'm fairly confident. My goal today, while I'm driving out, I'm going to try again to listen to this opera. Hopefully won't have to pull over. <laughs> uh, look, I promise you that on Poetry Says, what you're never going to hear is Alice Allen crying. Uh, you just, you're safe from that. You're safe from that. I, I did end up singing once or twice, and I'm sorry about that, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to cry at you, so don't worry. Um, but yeah, I, I just, you know, rip off the band-aid. Like, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Let's do it. bizarre feeling like I haven't listened to that in 30 years and I knew every single note and pretty much all of the words yeah there's just so much tied up in that piece of music the antagonist in the opera is the witches and they're just evil for no good reason they're just evil because they are witches and they they want to ruin Dido's life they're horrible and they they basically set the whole thing rolling and they send a messenger in the form of Mercury to Aeneas and convince him that he has to leave. He takes absolutely no convincing by the way. He's like, oh shit, okay, um, I'll go, no worries. And then he goes to her and he says, look, I, I gotta leave. And she's like, well, fuck you, buddy. She's not happy at all. Forget my fate. <laughs> I'm nine years old. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, well, that bit's done. That bit's done, and I'm still 15 minutes away. And I gotta pull it together because it's a hen's weekend. It's not fucking opera time with Alice. was deeply wrong about the straws and that's all I'm going to say about that I think I'm just going to read the first 12 lines and to see if I can glean anything from it again we were never married Dido cease weeping let me leave and agree we both knew real spouses I what the word real is doing a whole bunch of heavy lifting in that line 
real as opposed to imaginary, made up, pretend, fake. I also, just for the record, I, I hate the word spouses, but I've been thinking about it over the last few days and I don't know that there is another term that Porter can use there, but it's such an ugly word. <laughs> just, yeah, I'm like, what? I, could you say lovers, real lovers? But then that changes the connotation of that line quite a bit away from marriage and just into or well, not just, but into a different kind of relationship. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. Like, when is this poem taking place? Oh, the scorch of lost Trojan mornings in our rumpled bed with bread, figs, and yes, honey. Ah, oh, okay. So he's talking about his wife in that stanza lost Trojan morning so that's referring to his time in Troy with his wife in a rumpled bed with bread figs and yes honey that yes is is that because we expect honey to be coming after figs is that because honey is something that Dido and Aeneas have also enjoyed together it's a bit of it's a bit rough to be reminiscing about your dead or ex-wife with your current lover who you are about to leave. I, I need to understand Aeneas's perspective and I think I need, I think I need some help with that. But um, for now, I, I need to uh, go continue to be social and stop being a weirdo sitting on the back porch with my recording gear and my copy of Dorothy Porter Love Poems. Just for the record though, just before I do go back inside, this one came out in 2010, so two years after Dorothy Porter died. And let's have a look at the publication details for this, this poem. Aeneas Remembers Domestic Bliss was published in the Bee Hut, which was her first posthumous publication 2009 I think that's also a black ink book okay so this is quite a late poem or late published poem Sunday afternoon not sure how great my voice is going to sound today two late nights quite a bit of singing but I am back in Melbourne back at my desk and coming back to Porter and to the poem. I'm still a little bit at sea with it. So we left off at, and yes, honey. The next 12 lines are, I could taste honey as if every bee in Troy had made her phantom its swarming hive. Of course I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit and accept we were never married. Yes, my divided heart rears for you, mourning already the smell of your flushed skin and the sting of your green fire eyes. I'm not sure if it's a Sydney poet thing or if it's a Dorothy Porter thing. I've uh, had conversations with Lou and others about this, but there are some poets who can really bring 
the senses into a poem. The quality that I find least often is temperature. I don't know that we quite get to temperature in this poem, but we definitely get to taste. I could taste honey, the figs, the bread, scent, the smell of your flushed skin, and touch, I guess, the sting of your green fire eyes has a, a sensory element to it as well. Um, I like these lines a lot better than the first 12. Of course I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit and accept we were never married. I like futile tar pit. I know it's probably um pathetic fallacy, alarm bells going off, but I just like it. My divided heart rears for you. What a great choice, rears morning already the smell of your flushed skin the, the kind of annoying comment I would make uh, in a poetry workshop is well but can a heart smell but you know that's that's why you're not in a poetry group with me because that's the kind of shit that I come up with the sting of your green fire eyes is is great I mean it's very luxurious writing even if there are I think I think it's fair to say that there are a few missteps in this poem. Or maybe I just haven't quite unlocked it yet, but it's very immediate. It's very gorgeous, luxurious and, and romantic in, in both senses. I, I feel I need to give you a bit of a better sense of who Porter was, which I haven't done well so far in the episode. I think I just sort of assume that everybody knows who Dorothy Porter is. But you you may not, especially if you're listening overseas. The impression I have is that she... Well, first of all, let me give you her kind of lifespan, biographical details. So she was born in 1954 in Sydney. She died in 2008 here in Melbourne. She died of breast cancer. The other thing to note, which recording this now in 2023, uh, it's just funny the way Wikipedia puts this under the personal life section. It says, Porter was an open lesbian. <laughs> uh, it's not really, I don't think that's really the way that you would, you would speak about yourself today, right? I'm an open lesbian, <laughs> um, which is wonderful, isn't it? It's, it really is wonderful that that seems like such a, an anachronism, so out of date to talk in those terms. Porter won the Christopher Brennan Award for a Lifetime Achievement in Poetry in 2001, which is a pretty big deal. Other winners include Gwen Harwood. Oh, John Blight. Oh, Uncle Jack. Well done. I didn't know that. Uh, Vincent Buckley, Chris Wallace Crabb, Shapcott, Robert Adamson, Jeff Page. Wow. Go Jeff. So the reason I assume that everybody knows who Dorothy Porter is is because she she was a really um, – the cover of this book, Love Poems, has poppies on it. She she might have been, and again, I'm not, not really sure about how people thought about her at the time, but like she was published by some pretty big deal publishers. She wrote a book called The Monkey's Mask, which is a verse novel – um, lesbian detective story that was made into a film. Even just looking at this book and thinking about the one published before it, the Bee Hut, 
the the quick succession of those publications right after her death. Like Dorothy Porter was a big deal. She was probably in some people's minds in the Australian poetry landscape a bit of a tall poppy. But I bring it up because there is a part of me that is a little bit uncomfortable talking about her, spending a month thinking about her work, because it feels a little bit like making a decision to talk about Les Murray for a month or, you know, Judith Wright. But at the same time, like I said at the start, she's she's very important to me as a figure and I don't want to ignore her existence. And, um, yeah, the cultural cringe is a, is a weird thing that I probably just wholesale need to stop buying into. So those are my very tired thoughts. It was a big weekend. <laughs> I was thinking, like, what... Why are hens parties? Like, what what do they signify at this stage in history? In this case, I think it was just a bit of an excuse for everybody to get together and see each other, who people haven't seen each other for a long time, and just be together. Um, but there is a bit of a sense of, like, it's a send-off. It's a last big party before the hen, the bride-to-be transitions into a different phase of life and there were so many different permutations of relationship there there were women who were single women who were in various kinds of a relationship you know women like me who just found someone early on and then just lived with them and never got married um and I don't know how big the difference is between somebody like me and, and somebody who's gone through this kind of ceremony to be married. But in this story, in Dido and Aeneas, that, that fact is maybe the reason that Aeneas can leave. He can just go. Thank you. It's meant to be great. Monday morning. Monday afternoon, actually. 1.31pm, Monday 7th of August. Let me just finish this off. Let me do the last 12 lines of the poem. The last nine lines. I can't count. <laughs> I've been saying 12. What I meant was nine up until this point. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Okay. So we're up to green fire eyes. But we were never married and your ghost, such threats, will keep its roost and never come looking for me through my next awful war, next sacked city, to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. We were never married, Dido. Believe me, I'm sad too, that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. So I'm confused about the line that talks about your ghost, such threats. I guess what he's referring to there is, you know, in, in opera she says, let forsaken Dido die. But we were never married and your ghost will keep its roost and never come looking for me. So, and that, that such threats, I guess, is saying, like, you're being a bit ridiculous. Talking about killing yourself over this. You're being a bit over the top. And then the last part, we were never married, Dido. Believe me, 
I am sad too that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. Sad is such a, a light word to use in this scenario and it makes me think a little bit like the title. What he means is the opposite or there's a bit of a, like a shrug about it like, yeah, I'm sad too that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. There's a, a disparity, like an, an unequalness about that. It's a very strange note that the poem ends on and it's not satisfying and it's not comforting and it definitely suggests to me that Aeneas doesn't really care much about what's happening here. I'm just looking here at my concise Oxford companion to classical literature that I picked up somewhere along the way. The entry on Aeneas says Aeneas is portrayed by Virgil as pious or dutiful, conscious of his heavy destiny as founder of Rome, obedient to the will of the gods, a responsible leader to his followers, and a devoted father and son. Let me look up Dido. Is she in here? Dido, legendary daughter, was married to her uncle, who was murdered for his great wealth by her brother Pygmalion? Dido fled with some followers to Libya and founded the city of Carthage. A local king had given her as much land as might be covered by an ox hide. This she had cut into strips and stretched. To escape marriage, she built a pyre as though for an offering and threw herself onto the flames. What? To escape marriage? I thought that she did that because Aeneas left her. Oh, see, this is a thing. It's just so confusing. <laughs> Every time you look something up, the details are different. I mean, why is it so complicated? Why is it so complicated? Welcome to my island. I am Cersei, the sorceress. Boy, who decided to give every weirdo an island? Okay, Tuesday morning. Just straight up gossip today. Straight up gossip. I got to this part in the Gwen Howard biography that I'm reading. My tongue is my own. I know I keep mentioning it. I'm going to keep mentioning it until everybody has bought a copy. Um, Dorothy Porter is in here. Dorothy Porter is in the chapter titled My Sister, My Spouse. It turns out that later in life, Gwen Harwood, uh, when she was in, I think, about her 70s, Formed, formed a connection with a, a younger woman in her early 40s. And let's not get too distracted by that story. But um, I wanted to read this section where Anne-Marie Priest talks specifically about Porter. She also mentions her a couple of pages back where she talks about, about Howard's performance style and about how she won the Launceston Poetry Cup against a strong field of 26 belligerent bards, including Tim Thorne, Alan Lake, Komenos, John Ashton, and Dorothy Porter in 1991. Which reminded me to tell you that hearing... I had heard from many, many different people that one of the things about Porter was that she could really deliver her poems. And hearing that and going to a bunch of readings where I felt... 
poets were not doing that and then realizing that I wasn't doing that either was the thing that prompted me to go and learn to perform on stage so that I could so that I could be like her essentially so but getting back to the story um, about Gwen Harwood and her her younger friend Anne-Marie Priest writes by the early 1990s homosexuality had become much more visible in Australian society and Gwen had many poet and writer friends who were openly gay, including Dorothy Porter. Gwen was particularly intrigued by Dorothy. In the mid-1970s, Norman Talbot, who was Gwen Harwood's, one of Gwen Harwood's lovers, had shown her a photograph of the young poet, and she had been drawn to her beauty. Such a mysterious face. I hope I shall meet her, she told Norman. She reminds me very much of Vera Cotu, long dead, who had the same sort of beauty. The two women did not meet for almost 20 years, however, by which time Dorothy had published not only a series of well-regarded volumes of poetry, but also a novel in verse, Akhenaten. In August 1993, they were both writers-in-residence at Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga, where they gave readings and workshops, and Gwen attended a long seminar on Dorothy's novel. They met again at a literary festival in Hawthorne early the following year, and in mid-August, Dorothy came to Hobart as writer-in-residence at the Salamanca Arts Centre. During this visit, they saw each other often, and Gwen agreed to launch Dorothy's new verse novel, The Monkey's Mask, first in Hobart and then in Sydney. Gwen was both delighted by and wary of Dorothy's frank sexuality. She loved her obscene book and gave a copy to Alan Farrell, who was the priest at her church, I think. But she was also a little daunted by her unrelenting anarchy, telling Alan that Dorothy was, quote, so feral, it's exhausting. So I, I read that and loved it as a little snapshot of what Dorothy Porter might have been like. And then I was looking at all the Porter that, that I have at home. I definitely don't have every collection of hers, but I've got a bunch of them. And I was trying to find who was in the acknowledgements and who else was mentioned to see if I could find people to reach out to for this episode. And I opened up The Monkey's Mask, which I have read, and I looked at the dedication. And the dedication is for Gwen Harwood. <laughs> just just for the record, the, the younger woman who Gwen was into was not um, Dorothy Porter. It was some other, it was another woman who lived in Hobart. But, um, yeah, imagine, imagine dedicating a book like The Monkey's Mask, which is just explicitly sexual, to your poetic elder. Uh, is that, like, what is that? Is that just her being cheeky? What's going on? I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's my little bit of poetry gossip for Tuesday. Actually, one last thing, that description of Harwood's of Dorothy Porter, so feral, it's exhausting, makes me think of the character of Eddie Redcliffe from Deadlock, which I have been absolutely loving over the last month. I am totally in love with Madeline Sammy as Eddie Redcliffe. I haven't had a celebrity crush like this for a very long time. I wish I was like Eddie Redcliffe. In reality, I'm a lot more like Kath, you know, parenting my emotions. But I was just thinking about that and thinking, okay, so that's my current model for what Dorothy Porter was like. Eddie Redcliffe. Ah, really? I have to think of another plan then. Oh, I know about the stakeout detective and that, that was just it's so incredibly risky. You don't know Phil. 
If he knew that you had followed him, he would sue your pants off. Big risks reap big rewards. Like those astronaut monkeys. Yeah, they died in a fireball, but they got to see space, didn't they? I want to exhume Rod Dixon's body. <sighs> Fuck, I did, did it. Don't tell anyone, but I have had almost nothing to do at work this week, and it has been blissful. And today I have been just randomly Googling around, finding all kinds of threads to follow up on Dorothy Porter, on the poem. And I've been thinking about the poem overall, what it is saying or what I understand it to be saying at this point, nine days into thinking about it. And where I land at the moment is this is a poem from the perspective of somebody who wants to say, I know you thought this relationship was one thing, but the reality is it's something much less than that. And maybe that's why I was attracted to the poem in the first place, because that's something that I feel I, I know a lot about from experience from both sides of the experience, but more often from Dido's perspective, from being the one being told, I know you thought this was a big deal. This was built to last. This was something you could bank on. But we were never married, Dido. I still have no clue why Dorothy Porter would have written this poem from Aeneas's perspective and not Dido's. I'm sure that will become clear as I keep going into it. While I was wasting time at work today, I... Well, I wasn't wasting time. Work was wasting my time. I was doing this, which is a lot more important. Uh, I found a documentary, an ABC documentary, about Dorothy Porter that was... um, that was put out just a little bit after she died, and it's got interviews with Porter, as well as with David Maloof and a few other people, it's I've never I've never heard her speak before. I've never I've never seen her. There, there was one photo at Collected Works and the documentary opens with her walking up the stairs in the Nicholas building to Collected Works. There was one photograph of her on the wall and that is the only evidence beyond her books that I have had up until now that she was a real living person. But my God, even in this, you know, really um, over-earnest uh, mid-2000s ABC Sunday afternoon documentary, she's just burning, like she's on fire. One of the things she said that I wrote down that I think goes to what is happening in this poem specifically about the sensory nature of it that I was mentioning before the the sweet the sting that touch and smell and taste stuff she talked a bit about that in one of the interviews she says i aim to create a visceral five-dimensional even six-dimensional five-dimensional even six-dimensional world in poetry if you can't do that you shouldn't write poetry poetry should create all these extra dimensions The words should push against the boundaries of the senses.
something else happened today that I wanted to mention at the end because I'm not sure if this doesn't come off, I'm going to cut this out and um, just pretend like it never happened. But while I was sitting there at work at my desk, I, I have a list of people to contact and at the top of the list, I just put the name Andrea. Andrea is Andrea Goldsmith, Porter's partner for many, many years. And she is the person who my favorite poem in the world, Lucky, is dedicated to. So I thought, oh God, I mean, why don't I just Google her? Like, why don't I just see? Because I've been, I've been too scared to even look into this. So I, I've been avoiding it. But I thought, just, just Google her. What else are you going to do? Are you going to open up your bloody procurement report? Maybe not. So I went to her website and I saw that she had an agent and that made it a lot less scary to reach out. And so I sent an email to the agent saying, hello, my name is Alice Ellen and I'm doing this thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I would really appreciate it if you would pass this on. And uh, sent it off and sort of thought no more about it, thinking, okay, done it, done my thing. And then I got a text message a couple of hours later that said, hi, Alice, this is Andrea Goldsmith. Happy to talk. Ah, I mean, I just, I, I nearly passed out, honestly. I was just like, what, what? This is crazy. Um, I am so, I'm so overwhelmed by this. I have no idea I'm, I'm going to call her tomorrow night, apparently, and introduce myself and probably be a complete doofus. Um, yeah, and then maybe talk to her and maybe talk to her about this poem. Or maybe not, in which case all this audio will not be used. Okay. Just listen back to all that up to this point in the episode. Uh, I don't know how I feel about any of it, but I feel particularly weird about a lot of it now, given that what I'm about to do next is call Andrea Goldsmith. Because the thing is, when I did this with Forbes, he had kind of passed into legend in a lot of ways, or at least it felt that way. And... I felt like I could kind of say whatever I wanted and I, I know that I need to keep doing that and not edit myself and and start to interpret the poem with other people's opinions in mind. But I obviously I want to be respectful. I don't want to be uh, a dickhead about it. But I don't know. It's too late. <laughs> It's too late to worry about it. Uh, Okay, let's, before we overthink it, let's see what happens when we give Andrea a call. Okay, well, nothing happened because she didn't pick up. Maybe I will uh, get in touch with her later tonight. I did have one thought about the poem today, listening back to everything, and... That was that Anise's wife is very definitely dead. Like, that's obvious from the poem. <laughs> I can't believe that I missed that. Um, 
He refers to her phantom. He says specifically, the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist. And, you know, the majority of this poem is about Aeneas's wife, his late wife. It's not about Dido necessarily. And I started to think about it and think about his perspective and think about the fact that this man is grieving. And so when it gets to the point where he says such threats, I suppose I can, I can start to see from his point of view, you know, when Dido says, you know, let forsaken Dido die, he, Aeneas is hearing that and thinking, you know, such threats, like, God, you're being so, you're going to choose to die? When my wife was killed, I don't know how she was killed. Again, haven't read the Aeneid. I don't think we have a copy. I haven't looked. Uh, yeah, I'm starting to come around to that angle on the poem. Such threats. So it's late on Friday night. Just watched the movie Heat. For the first time. Don't know how I'd never seen Heat before. Not really sure what I've been doing with my time up until now. Really, really excellent film. I got a wife. We're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. If you've never seen the movie Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, it is essentially story of a man who wants to move to New Zealand very badly. Guy told me one time, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. Now, if you're on me and you gotta move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I think I'm at the point in the month where I'm just seeing this poem everywhere I go and I've been thinking about the perspectives in it and trying to get a handle on those and thinking about what the modern equivalent of this story could be. And I think it is basically the story of someone who chooses work over a relationship Aeneas chooses duty over staying with Dido. And I was watching this film and call me crazy, but I feel like this scene between Pacino and his wife is that story. You never told me I'd be excluded. I told you when we hooked up, baby, that you were going to have to share me with all the bad people and all the ugly events on this planet. And I bought into that sharing because I love you. I love you fat, bald, money, no money, driving a bus. I don't care. But you have got to be present like a normal guy some of the time. That's sharing. This is not sharing. This is leftovers. Oh, I see. What I should do is uh, come home and say, hi, honey, guess what? I walked into this house today where this junky asshole just fried his baby in a microwave because it was crying too loud. So let me share that with you. 
Come on, let's share that. And in sharing it, we'll somehow uh, cathartically dispel all that heinous shit, right? Wrong. You know why? Because you prefer the normal routine. We fought, then you lose the power of speech. Because I got a hold on to my angst. I preserve it because I need it. It keeps me sharp on the edge where I got to be. You don't live with me. You live among the remains of dead people. You sift through the detritus. You read the terrain. You search for signs of passing, for the scent of your prey, and then you hunt them down. That's the only thing you're committing. The rest is the mess you leave as you pass through. Okay, Saturday afternoon. All the housework is done. The washing machine is going in the background. Hopefully it's not too audible. I also managed to climb up to the top shelf and get down the copy of the Aeneid that it turns out we do have. And I hunted through and found this particular story in this penguin classics edition of the Aeneid it is called the tragedy of Dido it still astounds me that people have read this book it's it's so dense and feels so insurmountable to me so I want to read from it I'm not going to read every word but I just want to pull out this story and I want to include a bit more of Dido's voice and her side of what's happening at this particular point because in some ways this poem is a rewriting of this section of the Aeneid I think or it's at least it's a kind of an unfaithful rewriting. So basically at this point in the story Dido has realized that Aeneas is preparing to leave, his fleet is getting ready to set out from Carthage, and Dido, having realized this, confronts Aeneas, and she says, Traitor, did you actually believe that you could disguise so wicked a deed and leave my country without a word? And can nothing hold you, not our love, not even the cruel death, that must await your Dido? Is it from me that you are trying to escape? If I was ever kind to you, or if anything about me made you happy, please, please, if it is not too late to beg you, have pity for the ruin of a home and change your mind. It was because of you that I earned the hate of Africa's tribes. And it was because of you that I let my honour die, the fair fame which used to be mine, and my only hope of immortality. In whose hands are you leaving me to face my death, my guest? I used to call you husband, but the word has shrunk to guest. At least if I had a son of yours conceived before you left, some tiny Aeneas to play about my hall, and bring you back to me, if only in his likeness, 
I might not then have felt so utterly entrapped and forsaken. And then Aeneas replies, and this is basically where the poem that I'm looking at is taken from. Your majesty, I shall never deny that I am in your debt for all those many acts of kindness which you may well recount to me. And for as long as I have consciousness and breath of life controls my movement, I shall never tire, Alyssa, of your memory. Alyssa's her other name. Everyone's got two names. I had no thought of hiding my present departure under any deceit. Do not imagine that. Nor have I ever made any marriage right my pretext. For I never had such a compact with you. It's, it's brutal. It's really wrenching. Maybe it would be possible to read this. Can I get a reading grant? Can I just get a grant? Can I just get money to sit and read things? Australia Council, I know you're listening. I know you're listening. Okay, so it is Sunday morning. I'm about to go to Andrea's house, AKA Dorothy Porter's house. Probably goes without saying that I'm extremely nervous. I've been thinking though, like, sometimes it helps to get really specific about what it is I'm nervous about. Uh, And in this case, I'm nervous I'm going to say something stupid. But the reality is, I am going to say something stupid. So why bother being nervous about that? Just accept it. That's what's going to happen. All right, let's go. Um, but I'll, I'll set the scene first. Um, Can I ask you? Yeah. Because I'm curious before I say what I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, um, how do you read this poem? I don't know that I'm quite there yet, but where, where I have landed so far in this conversation with myself is that this is a grieving man, Aeneas, saying to Dido, I know you think this is a tragedy, but really, we were never married. This wasn't as big of a deal as you think it was. And I suppose, like, you know, I'm sad too, but like, you'll get over it. But I'm really, I'm really not sure. Can I read the poem? Yeah, please. Aeneas remembers domestic bliss. We were never married, Dido. Cease weeping. Let me leave and agree. We both knew real spouses. Even as the ghost of my precious wife passed through my clutching arms like mist, I swear on my soul I could taste her. Oh, the scorch of lost Trojan mornings in our rumpled beard with bread, figs, and yes, honey. I could taste honey as if every bee in Troy had made her phantom its swarming hive. Of course, I will miss you, but release us both from this futile tar pit and accept we were never married. 
Yes, my divided heart rears for you, mourning already the smell of your flushed skin and the sting of your green fire eyes. But we were never married, and your ghost, such threats, will keep its roost and never come looking for me through my next awful war, next sack city, to flood my drought mouth in honey or poison. We were never married, Dido. Believe me, I'm sad too that you can't sweeten me and I can't comfort you. Thank you. You were saying to me on the phone that it was written early 2000s, yes. do you think? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Do you remember much about the writing of it at all? I do, I do. Um, I do. Um, I knew it was a, a goer. Um, Dot's pattern, <laughs> Dot's pattern was um, she'd go into her study, which is at the front of the house. Um, my study is upstairs at the back. Hers is right near the front door. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she'd, she'd, she'd work it, um, you know, in white heat for an hour. And then she'd go out for coffee um, <laughs> while the, you know, the, 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 she was a sprinter, while the marathon fiction writer upstairs was, was, was still at her desk and would be for the rest of the day. And I would come downstairs and Dot would be off, you know, having coffee. Um, I'd come downstairs and on the kitchen bench, there'd be um, very often, very often there'd be a draft. And um, so um, I read this poem um, in draft. And um, it, it was, it's very little changed. I mean, it's really, really, um, it, it's, a, it's a perfect poem, I have to say, a perfect poem mm. that um, brought together um, a number of her interests and one of them, obviously, the classical world um, and writing about the classical world in a way that actually related to current times. Because this is an age-old thing mm. of, um, you know, affairs and marriage and, and, and so on. Okay, just got home from Andrea's house. I nearly ran a red light and I kind of forgot how to get back to my house. For the record, Andrea lives five minutes from where I do. I said I wasn't going to cry, and I'm not, but... Uh, I just, I really wasn't expecting uh, to see, um, yeah, just uh, so, uh, she was just so generous. She she showed me drafts of poems and 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 all the books and and photographs and yeah. I should not be driving. Okay, it's Monday morning again. It is the 14th of August. Here's what I want to do. I really want to open this analysis, this conversation up to you. I suspect, I strongly suspect that if you have listened to this whole episode, you have opinions about how I've interpreted the poem so far. You've noticed things that I've got wrong, things I've missed. You have your own feelings about this poem and I really want to hear them and I really want to include them 
in the second half of this episode. There is obviously more of that conversation with Andrea. I hesitated a little bit thinking maybe it's too soon to talk with her. Maybe I'll be given all the answers about this poem, but that's not really how I feel. I feel like there is there are more things to discover and I really want to do that together. So here's my proposition. If you want to, please record a little bit of yourself speaking into your phone or into your computer. Don't worry about how it comes out. I'm going to make you sound so smart, so immaculate. Um, I won't, I won't let you do that, for example. And I, I will also take any written, um, any written feedback that you want to send my way, but I would really love it if I could hear your voice. I have a few other people lined up to contribute, so don't worry, you won't be the only person who is included here in the second half. But yeah, I really, I want to make this like a group close reading. I think it is the best way to come to grips with the poem. So humor me. I'm going to end this part, this first part, with a story that Andrea told me about really her first encounter with Dorothy Porter. It's a story about the book Akhenaten, and it includes reference to the poem I'm going to read leading into it. It's a poem called Scarab, and I think it's useful to have heard this poem before you hear the story, which is a wonderful story that I'm so grateful to be able to include. And I'm, yeah, I'm still just reeling after yesterday. I'm a mess. Okay, Scarab. Will I stop eating? Starve and find your shadow to snuggle? Will I tell the musicians to shut up? Walk through that cobweb of silence and have your voice stick to my face? Smenkare, I can't move. Make decisions for me. Or leave me properly. Not this tease. Are you really dead? Let me sniff your embalmed hands. Let me open your canopic urns. Give me your still heart. It will be my scarab. You can't separate a heart from its brother. I read a little story about you attending a reading of, from that and then her uh, inscribing your copy with the book that made you look at me twice. And it's true. It was. We were on the, the Victorian Women's Writers Train that was sponsored by the now defunct National Book Council. The previous year they'd had a train going through um, Queensland with both male and female writers and um, and shenanigans were apparently gotten up to. No. Yes, they were. I so they couldn't thought that, imagine such they a thought thing. they were safe with a women's only one. <laughs> and I have to say from the very beginning, um, we stopped it there was a bus that took us up to Bendigo. Do you want to hear the story? Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. Mean, it's, <laughs> if you're willing it's to a share. great it's a great story, a great story. Um, um, so um, there were the Melbourne or the Victorian people and we got on a bus in East Melbourne and went to the airport to pick up the interstate writers. 
and Dorothy, who I'd never heard of, this was pre the monkey's mask, um, Dorothy, who I'd never heard of, um, she wasn't even on the bus. She managed to get her foot on the first step of the bus and she turned and she looked straight at me and she said, oh, she said at the top of her voice, you're Andrea Goldsmith, you're Jewish, you're a lesbian and you're an Aries. <laughs> and I just thought, save me, save me. <laughs> I was sitting next to the poet Kristen Henry, who was the, other, the only other person I knew well on that trip. I said, Kristen, save me from this absolute fucking idiot. <laughs> Kristen said, don't worry, Andy, I'll look after you. Um, so um, I should explain, I'm not a group person. So for me to go on something like this was, was, was a big step. You're already well and, out of your comfort zone. And, and then I'm outed in every every which way, most of which sort of, I mean, Aries, for God's sake, get a brain, I thought. So the very first night um, there was a reading um, on, I, I suspect it must have been Bedigo, um, and the people who were hosting us, they could choose who they wanted to read. And I couldn't believe it, they chose two poets, Kristen Henry and Dot, and one non-fiction writer, which was Cassandra Pybus. And I'm a fiction writer. I think fiction's at the top of the pile. They didn't choose a fiction writer. Mm. And I thought, oh, bugger, this idiot. They've chosen this idiot. Oh, I need to go back. So our publishers had, all, had sent boxes of books um, to, for us to give out to people as the train travelled through Victoria. But being writers, what we did was we all helped ourselves uh, to the book. Free books. Free hey, books. Yeah, yeah. So we, so we helped ourselves and I assiduously avoided Dorothy Porter's. I mean, you know, this idiot couldn't possibly write anything reasonable. Mm -hmm. so, so we're at the reading that night and um, it starts with Kristen. Kristen is a very, very good reader of poetry, so that was fine. Um, then Cassandra. And then Dot got up and she read from Akhenaten. And I should say, before, just before she got up, I'm trying to work out, can I possibly leave without being seen? <laughs> so um, anyway, she gets up and um, I was bowled over. I was bowled over by the poetry. The poetry was just fantastic. Um, and I was bowled over by the performance. I was really bowled over. And um, there's one poem towards the end of that book that's called Scarab, um, when um, Akhenaten is, is, is actually um, mourning her, his brother, Sminkari. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful poem. And um, over all the years we were together, Dot would very often slip in that poem for me when she was at her a reading because I just love Scarab. It makes me quite emotional even talking about it. Um, anyway, so here's this person who really got, got up my goat, um, who's written fabulous poetry, is a terrific performer. So after, um, after the performance, I had to go begging for a copy of this 
book because I had... Because you'd avoided it. Of course I had avoided everything of hers. Anyway, I read it that night and I decided that, um, you know, she might be a Dylan, she might be this, that and the other, but she was a hell of a poet. And um, that'll get me in. That'll get me in. And it did. (laughs) And it did. Last, last thing. Can't believe I nearly forgot this. My dad is finally visiting Melbourne after... He hasn't been able to get down here for ages and ages. It's been really hard for him uh, to get down and visit us. But he is coming down to Melbourne in the first week of September. This trip has been scheduled and rescheduled so many times, I can't even tell you. Guess what is on 2nd of September, 5pm at Collins Collins Street Baptist Church, the Victoria Coral and Art of Sound Orchestra will be performing Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. Oh, fuck. Except that's when Ruth's getting married. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Okay, well, uh, we'll figure something out. Over torture, one of your soldiers mentioned that you collect giant wooden animals. Don't have a horse. So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this one? Spot really? I have to think of another plan then. <laughs>